Hello, all. We have talked about the social justice uptick work and how it's not just one and done. But for some people, including barbershop books, there was a drastic uptick in June, and now things are back to normal. Are they, though? And if your immediate answer is yes, you are not looking hard enough. Here on the podcast, we've been focusing on the intentionality of this sustainable lifestyle shift. It cannot be just reading an anti-racism book once to your child and bam, your child is an anti-racist. It has to be more than that. And it has to last a lot longer than a month. So that's where Barbershop Books comes in. For those of you who may be wondering why this organization exists, it came out of an idea that its founder, Alvin Irby, had when he was getting his hair cut at his local barbershop in New York and noticed one of his young students there really just not doing anything except sort of getting into trouble on the side. What Alvin has done is nothing short of amazing in terms of changing the trajectory of black boys and their relationship with reading, all stemming from the barbershop which, as we've discussed before and we'll discuss on this episode, is a Black cultural center in American neighborhoods. A little about Alvin, though, before we turn to the interview. He's a passionate educator committed to innovative curriculum, child-centered education, and transformative teaching and leadership. He's taught kindergarten and first grade in New York and serves as the education director at the Boys Club of New York. He holds a master's in childhood education from the Bank Street Graduate School of Education, a master's of public administration from the Wagner School of Public Service at NYU, and a bachelor's from Grinnell College. He's also a nationally recognized speaker, an award-winning social entrepreneur, and as you'll see, a comedian to boot. We'll hope you'll enjoy this interview as much as we did, and we really hope that you get involved with this amazing organization. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Alvin, it is so nice to have you on the podcast today. Our family has been a huge fan of barbershop books, from seeing the books at our local barbershop to reading about everything that's going on. So we can't wait to share some of what you're doing with our listeners, because they probably are not as familiar. So... First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the inception of Barbershop Books? Sure. My name is Alvin Irby, and I am the founder and chief reading inspirer at Barbershop Books. We create child-friendly reading spaces in barbershops and provide early literacy training to barbers. And our mission is to help young Black boys identify as readers by connecting fund books to male-centered spaces and by involving Black men in boys' early reading experiences. And how did you get started with the concept of barbershop books? So I was teaching first grade in the Bronx here in New York City, and there was a barbershop across the street from my school. And so one day after school, I'm getting a haircut, and one of my first graders, you know, comes into the shop and he just kind of plops down you know, on the bench and, and he's just kind of, you know, bored and staring out the window, getting antsy, you know, and his mom is like, sit down, you know, and he's my student, right? So the whole time I'm looking at this, all I keep thinking is, oh man, he should be practicing his reading right now. And I wished I had a children's book to give him, but I didn't. And so it was really kind of that chance encounter with one of my students in the barber shop that sparked the idea for what is now Barbershop Books. That's so cool. I love that it's just one moment that can spark the idea for an entire game-changing thing. 
I'm very fortunate that at that time I was doing stand-up comedy. Oh, I still, well, I guess, well, I don't know what I do now. I'm a virtual comedian. I don't know. I'm not getting on stages in public these days. But because I've done stand-up comedy for so long and I had been doing stand-up comedy at that time, I got in the habit of just writing down things when they come to me. And so immediately after leaving the barbershop, I kind of jotted down notes about this idea of putting children's books in barbershops. And I kind of emailed it to myself just so I would have it. And so, you know, one of the things I like to tell entrepreneurs and just creatives or or just people in general, like, you know, don't be arrogant and think that just because something is a good idea, you're going to remember it. Like respect your ideas, respect the muse enough to write it down. And so I'm fortunate that I did write down the idea because it's possible that I could have very well just said, oh, that's cool. And then like, forgot about it. <laughs> I was okay. Misash and I were like, mm, who's asking the next question? Because, you know, I get that you met one of your students who was a boy in a barbershop. Why did you, and that might be why, but I was just curious, why black boys versus black girls in terms of reading? So when you look at, you know, reading achievement, you know, reading performance across all demographics, girls are kicking boys' butts, really. They have higher levels of reading proficiency. They read more. They identify more as readers. And so, you know, I think it just comes down to kind of choosing a population where the need is greatest. It's not that there's not a need with Black girls. I think all Black children and just a lot of other children as well who, you know, are kind of underserved populations would benefit from, you know, expanded reading opportunities. But, you know, when you have limited resources, limited time, sometimes you have to narrow your focus. I also think that it's important to recognize that there are populations who have very specific challenges that they're dealing with. And sometimes I think in an effort to be inclusive, sometimes it can end up kind of, I don't know if watering it down is the right word, but sometimes, you know, specific challenges require specific solutions. And I think that's kind of what Barbershop Books is kind of, in, you know, trying to do is to address the lack of black male reading role models, right? So when you look at early childhood education, black girls are significantly more likely to encounter a black woman reading, whether it's some of her early childhood teachers, you know, her mother or something, whereas a black boy, you know, there are almost no black male early childhood educators and a majority of black children are raised by single mothers. So they, you know, there may not be a kind of black male reading role model at home. And so I think that, you know, there's a number of factors that kind of weigh into or that informed the decision to kind of focus on black boys in particular. But I think it is important to note that we ship our curated, you know, book lists and our colorful bookshelves. We've shipped those to any barbershop and we do ship them to any barbershop in the country, regardless of the demographic. I just would say that, you know, maybe black boys are our target audience, but we certainly uh, don't discriminate against any group or anything like that. If someone feels that a barbershop would benefit from our program, we are willing to participate. Can I ask a quick question? Because you mentioned this role of the barbershop a few times, and I will come back to some of these other questions we have, but I have a white husband and white presenting children. So I am not in my life as familiar with the role that the barbershop plays in the black community. You know, me, Sasha and I've talked about it. We've talked about it on past episodes, but can you explain a little bit about the role that a barbershop plays in the black community? 
Sure. So barber shops in many places are like cultural centers, you know, for black men, black families. They are, you know, I mean, here's the thing. So on average, I would say that black boys start going to the barber shop around age two or three, unless their parents, you know, cut their hair or something. And then they just keep going and they generally go to the exact same barber each month, you know, so it's usually a monthly occurrence. Sometimes, you know, there are certainly families or children who go to the barber shop twice a month, right, to get their hair cut. So there's these repeated visits. And, you know, when it comes down to, you know, the important things that we do in our lives, you know, one of the first things that, you know, families will do is go make sure that their son has a good haircut, you know, before they get their award or before they go to some special event. And so, you know, barbers are always there for the important moments in children's lives. And so, you know, if a child is going to the barbershop from age two or three every month, you know, for several years or for their entire life, you know, I think that barbers have this unique opportunity to really have a big influence on the lives of the children that they serve. And so, you know, I think that the work that Barbershop Books is doing is really leveraging the cultural significance of the barbershop and the relationship that barbers have with young black boys. You know, I think another thing that's really important to kind of note about, you know, black barbershops is that they're one of the few places left in many black communities where families from different socioeconomic levels interact, right? If you have good health insurance, you don't go to the same dentist, doctor, as someone who's on public assistance. But that's not true of the barbershop. I know for a fact, senior executives for Fortune 100 companies who go to the exact same barbershop as taxi drivers or anyone, you know, and so I think that, and when you're in the barbershop, all kind of opinions are equal, right? It doesn't matter whether you have degrees or, you know, what your background is, you know, if there's a conversation about sports or about politics or about whatever, you know, everyone kind of has an equal say in terms of uh, being able to contribute. And so, you know, I think that, you know, some people might think, well, oh yeah, that's great because, you know, the parents who read to their kids all the time can model for the poor families. But, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, I remember talking to a guy who, you know, you know, he would bring his son in there all the time. And, you know, he says his son reads all the time and reading is important, but he never really thought about, you know, asking his son to bring a book to the barbershop until he was in there one day and he saw a grandmother reading with her grandson. Right. And here he is an executive at a, you know, a fancy company and this grandmother right in there with her grandson reading together kind of inspires him. And so, you know, I think that that's just one of the beautiful things about the space. I love that for all those reasons that you said. And I remember my husband's from Louisiana. So when we go back to Louisiana, he'll go back to his barber that he grew up with. And that's what he did before, you know, funerals or weddings or any time we're back there. And I remember when he first moved to the Bay Area, he said that the best thing that the senior partner at, he's an attorney, a senior partner at his firm did when he was a summer associate was like, you need to get your hair cut. I know where to take you. And so as a black senior partner, the only black senior partner that there was, and they went to the barber shop, And that was huge for him because it gave him also part of a community here when he didn't really know anyone else. So I think that Thank you for just talking about that role of the barbershop, because now I'd also like to ask, now we're in a pandemic, and this is a very different time in which we can't be 
interacting in that same way. So how do you see the role of the barbershop changing and how has that changed through barbershop books as well? Well, I know that, I mean, all the barbershops have changed, you know, because of new safety guidelines issued by state health agencies, you know, requiring the barbers to limit movement and, you know, that type of thing. So instead of people kind of hanging out in the waiting area, now they're having to wait in their cars, right? Um, And so that certainly will change some of the dynamic. Also just the spacing, right? So, you know, people aren't as close together. But then I think one of the most drastic you know, ways in which this will impact a lot of barbershops is that many of them may cease to operate. You know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of Black barbershops weren't able to secure as much of the PPP kind of COVID relief funds, and many of them may not be set up with the tech infrastructure to make a kind of smooth transition into scheduling, because in some states now they're requiring everyone who gets a haircut to be scheduled to come in, right? And so for the barbershops that already had scheduling apps in place or who were already doing these things prior to COVID, you know, they were kind of, in a sense, already kind of set up, right? They have their whole clientele list and their emails and everything in a database somewhere, whereas other people, you know, may be having to kind of try and build a lot of that right now from scratch. And so, you know, I think there's some real obstacles for a lot of Black barbershops moving forward. And, you know, I hope that, you know, special programs and other additional funding that gets approved, you know, really takes a close look at ways that they can better support some of these small businesses that may not have been best positioned to take advantage. You know, and I'm reading articles now about, you know, lobbyists lining up, right, to make sure that whoever they're representing gets, you know, huge chunks of the money. And then I think about, some of these small businesses who don't have a lobby, right? And it really does worry me, you know, and what does that mean for the communities, you know, that many of these barbershops have served for years, if not decades. So in terms of, what did you ask about how barbershop book is shifting or I don't think? <laughs> Both. So I'd love to hear next about how you guys are shifting. Well, you know, I think that we're, we're going to be transitioning to a book distribution kind of model. Before we had you know, a bookshelf and a curated list of books, and they were communal books, meaning that, you know, one kid could come in, read a book, and then put it down, and then another kid could pick it up. But of course, in this climate, you know, I don't think parents are really going to be letting their children touch anything communal, any communal objects, even if they're books in public spaces for a while. And so, yeah, we think that we'll be moving toward a book distribution model where we work with barbers to identify you know, boys and other children with limited access to books to give them books that they can take home and keep. We also have launched a virtual literacy, uh, like a summer literacy program for boys ages six and seven that launched earlier this month. And we're going to be continuing the program in August. So that's very exciting. And then we're currently working on launching a e-library. You know, one of the things that we've encountered during the pandemic is we've had a flood of parents and teachers asking us if we know where they can find free e-books online that have Black characters. And we've had to tell them all no. And we're barbershop books, right? That's what we do. And, you know, there are some paid resources, but even For a lot of those resources, it's so difficult to find children's books that have Black characters that are not about slavery, civil rights, 
or biographies, you know, and I think that black boys deserve to laugh and go on adventures and, you know, just be children like anyone else. But too often in children's literature, they don't have an opportunity to do that. You know, they have to fight oppression and deal with all type of other serious themes. So you guys are creating that book series now? Well, so we're going to be launching an e-library where we provide free access to, you know, e-books that have been donated to us that kind of, you know, fit our criteria in terms of being highly engaging for our target audience. But then also we're going to begin creating original children's books. Um, And so, you know, we're going to certainly be needing the fundraise so that we can do that. But I think that this is is the direction that our organization is going to be moving into e-publishing, you know, virtual programming, as well as continuing to, you know, leverage our network of barbershops to get books into the hands and homes of Black boys. You know, you just mentioned there's certain criteria that you look for. Like, how do you choose what books to include in the barbershop? Do they vary by location? You know, what are some of those criteria that you have? The criteria are, of course, around the quality of the illustrations. Of course, the writing needing to be, you know, error free and that sort of thing, just as a baseline. But then also, you know, thinking about whether or not the titles are titles that would be of interest to boys. And so, you know, we kind of, you know, are looking to get input from boys as well as to compare any submissions that we receive to, you know, some of the books that have already been recommended. I also think that our e-library will most likely include some child generated work. So we'll create some book templates that children can kind of print out, color, write their own stories. And then, you know, I guess, you know, scan or something into a PDF that we could then upload into our e-library. So those are some of the ways, you know, in which we are looking to innovate. We're also currently developing beauty shop books. And so we'll be looking to kind of create a, a companion program for barbershop books that specifically, you know, supports Black girls. So that's exciting as well. That's awesome. I can tell you that my six and seven-year-old sons are big fans of the books that are at our local barbershop, including No David and Not Quite Norman. Like those are, I feel like my younger son feels like No David is his life story. So this is one kid just getting told no all the time because he's basically destroying stuff, which is literally what happens in our house every day. So I can attest to those books and the selection of those books. Those are great. Wonderful. So I think we wanted to change gears just a little bit from talking about the barbershop and into more about educational equity. And especially now when you think about all the heightened awareness around equity and what we're also looking at heading into the fall in a pandemic where we have a lot of physical spaces closed and we're facing a lot of issues around school and where privilege is really coming into play and the conversations that we see. By privilege coming into play, that is a huge understatement as to the conversations that we've been seeing. So, you know, we wanted to ask, what do you think white parents can do in this scenario to advance educational equity to really, if they're being very serious about doing this, what are some of the steps they can take? Well, first, I think just making sure that they are purchasing uh, books that have characters that are different from 
maybe what they look like or what they may be familiar with, you know? So I think that's a great start. I think too often, you know, well, just in general, you know, I don't think it's just white parents, but I think a lot of times people tend to gravitate toward things that they identify with. I mean, so I think certainly purchasing more books that have diverse characters and making sure that they aren't books that adhere to kind of a lot of the stereotypical representations of people of color. So a lot of the award-winning books that have Black characters are about slavery, civil rights, and or biographies. And so I would encourage parents to not only buy diverse books, but also try and buy diverse books that aren't about those types of things that portray people of color in kind of oppressed states, right? No child's introduction to Black people should be them as a slave or them in some type of oppressed state. So that would be one thing. I think another thing would be to, you know, resist the urge to embrace notions of meritocracy. You know, I think that in America, you know, I think that, you know, we have this ideal that, you know, if you work hard, then, you know, you'll get what you deserve. But the reality is that, you know, there are single mothers who are working two or three jobs. And you're telling me that somehow there's 70 hour weeks are somehow less rigorous or than some CEO or whoever. It's like, no, nah, get out of here, right? And so I think recognizing that, you know, there's more to the challenges that some people face than just what meets the eye, you know? And why is that important to resist notions of meritocracy? Because, you know, when it comes to, you know, things like property taxes, right? People are often willing to pay a little bit more for property taxes if they feel like their kids are going to have access to better schools, right? But are people willing to pay more so that someone else's kids has access to better opportunities? And I think that, you know, our individualism of of American society kind of leads people to kind of create these barriers or these divisions. Um, And I think that we need to, you know, kind of embrace an idea that like everybody's children are important. You know, of course, you have children, your children are the most important children. But I think there's more. There's just, all I'm saying is there's more that I think everyone can do to try and ensure that more children have access to, you know, educational opportunities. It's so hard not, I have so much, and I don't even know if we'll include this in the recording, because the things that have been annoying me over the last little while or mulling over my brain are things like, in this area of Denver I'm in, the PTA raises like six figures per year to fund the librarian, to fund Chromebooks, to fund stuff in our local school district. The Denver school district is huge. It serves a very diverse population of people and is poorly funded in terms of state ranking, right? So the parents are really involved. You go across one of the major roads here and you have schools that can barely get $2,000 per year raised in the PTA. And people have had big picture conversations like what if we were to all pool our efforts and they won't. Oh, the parents aren't having that. The parents are not are not giving their money to go to some poor little black kid. I mean, or I'm not going to say the parents aren't, but the majority, I mean, I think about what happened in Memphis where, you know, they were trying to break off to create their own school district because they didn't want their money going to like help fund the majority black. Because I think they combined the county school with the like the city schools in Memphis and yeah, the parents were adamantly opposed to having their money and their tax money go to kind of fund the inner city. And I think, 
I don't know. I think a lot of people don't want to recognize that, like a lot of people want to say, well, I have what I have because I worked hard. But most people don't want to admit or say out loud that if that's true, then the converse has to be true, which is if someone doesn't have what I have, it's because they deserve what they've gotten, right? They don't have what I have because they just didn't work as hard as I worked. And I think, you know, that's problematic, especially when you look at all the kind of institutionalized racism that plays out in banks and who can get loans and who can get the best interest on loans and who can get their resumes made, you know, passed along to the next kind of round of interviews. You know, there's so many things, you know, but I think thinking about what people can do with their own resources, with their own realm of influence, I think it's the best way to go. Because when you look kind of at these kind of larger systemic issues, it can be overwhelming. You know, another thing I would say is to find local organizations that are led by people of color in your local communities or near your communities and make monthly donations to them. You know, make a commitment, even if it's, you know, $5 a month or $10 a month or whatever, you know, is something that you can comfortably give. But, you know, find those organizations and make a commitment to give regularly to them. You know, that's a big one, I think, that could go a long way toward, you know, helping. I like that. And I like this idea of books going back to the kids. Here in Colorado, they had given every kid in kindergarten the book, Giraffes Can't Dance. But it also made me think about, which was great. It's a great book, uh, you know, and everyone got to take it home to build their home library. So I love this idea of kids having access to books. I've always told my kids, it's the one thing I will try not to ever say no to is if you want a book, I'll figure out a way to get it. Like books are such the cornerstone of education. See, and while you have this mindset, I remember when I was an education director at a nonprofit here in New York City, I organized the Scholastic Book Fair, you know, twice a year. And I remember seeing little boys, because the organization only served boys, but I remember seeing little boys being excited about a book they wanted and like being super happy and bringing it over to a parent and watching parents look at the book, flip it over and say, $8, find a cheaper book. And then seeing the kids' excitement just drain from their faces. And I think that, you know, so many states in the last decade have been transitioning toward kind of grade level reading mandates where, you know, retention mandates, where if a child isn't reading on grade level by the end of third grade, you know, they're going to be held back. Right. And a lot of states have seen this as kind of a, you know, get tough on reading kind of thing. But what I find so interesting is that while they're mandating proficiency levels, no one has had a conversation about mandating access to books. I'm like, what about mandating that every K through four classroom has a classroom library and enough books for children to be able to take books home, right? And I'm like, I don't understand how you mandate reading achievement before you mandate book access. And I mean, I don't know, half the time, I just feel like I took the little pill to allow me to see the matrix and everybody just kind of walking around like, y'all don't see this. This doesn't make sense to y'all. What's going on? (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Was that the red pill or the blue pill? I can't remember. You know, I do not recall, but it was one of those. It was one of those pills. Talking about the book characters, it really made me, I don't remember what the stats were, but I think about people's bookshelves. And when I mentioned that giraffes can't dance, I think the stats were like, there are more books that have white characters 
and inanimate non-human characters acting as if they're characters than there are black characters, right? Oh no, publishers would definitely rather publish a book about an animal before they publish a book about a black child. Because white parents will buy books about animals, but they're much less likely to buy a book featuring a black child. So, you know, I mean, I mean, there's data. Like, it's not like publishers are just out here randomly doing stuff. Like, they use their sales data to inform what books get published. But what that means is that, yeah, black children are much more likely to find a book about animals than they are to find books that feature black children, especially when it comes to books that aren't about some of those stereotypical topics that generally, you know, books get published about, you know. Have you, I mean, this latest surge of interest in anti-racist education has only been around for a few months, but have you seen any difference in interest from either publishers about the content that they're soliciting or in terms of white parents or people getting involved in supporting your organization? Have you seen any changes? Well, no, we, June was certainly a record setting month for us in terms of interest. I think, you know, now it died down, but certainly I think in response to, you know, everything that was happening with Black Lives Matter and, and everything like that. Yeah, we did see an interest. Um, we also saw an interest from a few, you know, companies who wanted to do pro bono projects with us and things like that. But now it's kind of died down, right? And so I guess people are on to whatever the next, whatever just new in the new cycle, you know, but, you know, I'm thankful. I mean, we're certainly thankful for the influx of attention and resources that came in, but, you know, we're still here doing the work, right? Even after people have given their donation or they kind of moved on to the next thing they're interested in, you know, but I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I thought a lot about is this, like, one of the things that happened is immediately after, you know, or, or not immediately after, but during the last month or two, there's been a lot of people looking to create different types of fundraisers, you know, to support our organization. And one of the things that, you know, has just been very interesting is that a lot of times people won't even contact us. They'll just start doing something. And then on top of that, sometimes people will use our organization to try and sell their products, right? So they'll say, hey, everybody, buy my this, and I'm going to give a percentage. They won't even say what the percentage is. They haven't even contacted us to find out how they can make sure the money gets back to us. But they're leveraging, you know, our organization to be relevant and to help move their products. And so, you know, something about the kind of capitalist nature of our country and how movements and get objectified and commercialized. You know, I think there's something kind of perverse, you know, about American culture in that way, you know, where people feel 100% comfortable monetizing black pain for their own personal benefit or for the benefit of their company. And it's so interesting because at the same time that people are like, we want to support organizations, we want to help them. At the same time that they're wanting to help, it didn't even occur that they should even contact or solicit input from organizations, you know? And that is, I think, one of the ways in which privilege manifests itself is that even in wanting to do good, people don't value the opinion of people of color enough to solicit their input because why would I need to ask someone for their opinion if what I'm doing is right? You know, and, and so I think, you know, part of anti-racism, you know, is less about buying a book and less about, I think, and more about being humble enough to recognize that I don't have all the answers, that I don't know, right? 
You know, because if someone reads, you know, some anti-racist children's book to their child and they think, oh, all right, I can check off that box. I have an anti-racist child now. Well, I don't even know what to tell them. You know, maybe, you know, adopt a growth mindset, right? (laughs) That it's not a one-time fix, right? It's more of a lifestyle and an ongoing process, right? And it's less about being right, you know, because we're, everybody's going to make mistakes, right? When it comes to anything, right? You know, if anyone who's traveled internationally, you know, there's just things you're not going to know about other people or their culture. I think it's the humility part that's really most important and a willingness to learn. I love that. And on that note, out of curiosity, if people want to support Barbershop Books, how can we support you? Well, there are a number of ways. So one is to, of course, you know, make a donation on our website, you know, barbershopbooks.org or through our Facebook page, you know, connecting with us on social media at Barbershop Books, just to stay uh, abreast of, you know, our programming and different opportunities that we have. Also, uh, parents can recommend books, right? So right on our website, if they know a, a book that they think would be perfect for our target audience, they can recommend those books. They can create fundraisers on Facebook, right? So, you know, for your birthday or to celebrate someone or some uh, important moment in your life, if you want to create a fundraiser to support an organization, you know, that's certainly another way that people can support barbershop books. And then also, I think just advocating in your schools, right, for diverse books that aren't just stereotypical, you know, in terms of slavery, civil rights, and biographies, but really challenging teachers and librarians to provide those books and to invite guest readers, you know, encouraging teachers to utilize guest readers. I mean, one of the things that I think about is voices, right? Great teachers do act outs, right? They act out the characters and they do different voices. But what happens when you're a white teacher and you're reading a black book? You still act out the voices. I am not advocating teachers go out and acquire an ethnic accent. That is not what I am advocating today on the podcast. (laughs) What I am saying is that I hope schools and teachers and educational leaders look for opportunities to bring in guest speakers who can, you know, just read books in different ways. You know, because, you know, if that's the case, if a teacher only does voices for the book she feels most comfortable with, and she's white, then it means that the children are not going to be experiencing books that are diverse in the same way. And so then the question is, well, if you have, you know, non-white kids in the classroom, well, how are they experiencing those reading moments? And is it sending a different message to them? then it might be sending to some of the other children? Or is it even sending a different message to the white children in the room about how engaging die books that aren't white characters are? Because if the teacher is reading those books in a less engaging way, well, that could be sending messages that, well, these types of books aren't as fun, right? And so I just, you know, I'm not saying there's any one way to do it, but I just think that that's something that educators and schools should really think about is ways that they can leverage their community right? And their parents, you know, to really bring different types of reading experiences to children. I love that because I think it's something that, you know, is so simple in some ways to just advocate for in our schools with our teachers and our administrators. And for parents, I think identifying read aloud online that, you know, may have different kinds of people reading those books, right? 
because now, especially with, you know, every lots of programming moving virtual, it now gives parents an opportunity to maybe, you know, like, has your child ever heard a black man read a children's book ever? I don't know. But I think that's something that all children should have, no matter who you are. Right. And so or a black woman or, or a Latino man or a Latino woman. And so I think looking for opportunities like that to let children see different to just not just to let them see, but to let them have different types of reading experiences, I think could be very powerful. I love it. I love that it's very concrete, specific stuff that anybody can do all relatively easily. Well, there are lots. I mean, we have, I think at this point, over 30 virtual read alouds on the Barbershop Books page alone, right? And most of them are, the read alouds are led by me, but we also have had a guest author. We've even had a young reader. So we had a a 10-year-old boy who read one of his favorite books. And so I think, you know, our page is one example, but I think, you know, there are lots of other examples out there. Any other questions, Misasha? You know, this has been great. And I have been waiting to talk to you for so long because I, you know, as a family, we are so invested in barbershop books as a whole. And I knew that this would be a great conversation. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you want to say that you want to share? Yeah, I think that, you know, when it comes to, you know, my philosophy, right, about reading and kind of how best to support reading. You know, I think that too often, as at least in kind of very, you know, I don't know, technical spaces, right? Or, you know, there's this like debate, like phonics versus whole language, or, you know, there's these camps. And, you know, I don't adhere to any one thing. I think that there's stuff to be gleaned from lots of different ways of thinking about how to help children read. But one thing I do think a lot about is the children who don't have support outside of school. And what can school systems, teachers, you know, librarians, what can we do to help support those students? And one of the things that I think could be done is really thinking about what types of positive early reading experiences cultivate children's reading identity. What type of early positive reading experiences inspire children to read when no one is around, when it's not required, when an adult is not forcing them? What are those reading experiences? And I think that, you know, once we begin to identify some of those types of experiences, I think that they should be systematically incorporated into schools because the children who don't have a parent who's buying them books, you know, or who doesn't have a parent who is taking them to the library, well, those children need to be more intrinsically motivated than other kids who might have all types of additional supports. And so the problem is that too often the type of reading experiences that those children get, receive, the ones who are struggling in reading and who don't have support, they tend to be the type of like reading interventions that make a child, as soon as they leave school, not want to touch a book. And so what I'm saying is that, yes, those children need reading instruction and focus on, you know, skills, but I think that schools need to be thinking much more intentionally about what do they need to inspire them and support them in reading outside of school. And so that's something that I think, you know, my, you know, barbershop books, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about, and I think, you know, it's something that, you know, I hope um, more schools think about, especially now when children don't have as much access 
to trained educational professionals or book access, right? So what are the things that, you know, teachers can be doing, doing those limited virtual <laughs> lessons, right? That will help support those students. So yeah, that's, I guess, my last little two cents. Thank you so much for coming on the call and chatting with us. I have a random, putting you on the spot, I have no idea if you're interested in doing this. You haven't had a chance to do any stand-up comedy. Do you want to do a couple minutes for us? I will not be doing stand-up today. <laughs> but if people would like to listen to some of my stand-up, if they visit my website, alvinirby.com, I have two comedy albums. My most recent one is called Really Dense. And then my first comedy album is called They Know Too Much. And they're also available, you know, like on Spotify or Amazon Music or that sort of thing as well. But yeah, they can find them on my website and they can listen and laugh as much as their hearts, you know, desire. <laughs> Thank you. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 